0: Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Samma Sammubdassa Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Samma Sammubdassa Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Samma Sammubdassa. Haaru Tade s sang a This is the actual Wesaka Puja day is the full moon, uh, of which is on Wednesday. But uh, because of the lifestyle in uh, this country, we uh, have Visakapuja days scattered around uh, that time, usually on Sundays. So, I think there's several Visaka puja celebrations going on, different temples, and then there'll be on also on Wednesday, and then probably the following Sunday, some there'll be other places. So this' is just to, to bring this into our consciousness, the, the one of the important uh, celebratory days in Buddhism. So there's be Saka Puja, Magga Puja and Asalha Puja. These uh, Maga Pujas is usually the full moon in February and then uh, Asalha is in July. And that's the, the full moon in July where the entering the next the following day is the entering of the rains retreat, the Vasa. <coughs> and in uh, Theravada Buddhism the the three events of birth enlightenment and death are all celebrated in one day Uh, and this of course is uh, is a good way to reflect on on this uh, this experience of birth and then between birth and death is enlightenment and at the end death of the body so we've all been born otherwise you wouldn't be here and we'll all die sometime in the future that's certain enlightenment then what's the and so that's the the Buddhist teaching is uh, is uh, the teaching of enlightenment so during this span between birth and death is this is our potential for uh, awakening and seeing the Dhamma or reality. It's a very interesting time because um, you realize how deluded most of the world is. You know, the the endless problems that we hear about and we experience in our own lives uh, uh, are caused through not being enlightened through not being able to see things as they really are. And so we we endlessly create uh, complications onto life. And of course, right now there's so much the the fears of terror, terrorism and, and paranoia haunt the whole planet. And so war definitely coming from the unenlightened mind of human beings. Enlightenment then isn't, isn't, isn't when, uh, with enlightenment then there's no need to to fight or kill or destroy. But in terms of birth and death, and that way, it, when we just identify with birth and death and uh, we identify with the bodies we have, and with the views and opinions, of the thoughts, the emotional habits. Then we get we get stuck in this dualism, of where there's right and wrong, good and bad, good and evil, uh, and so forth. The the one things o- one positive uh, perception has its opposite. So. And that's the way the sense world is. It's, uh, it's, it's the experience of birth and death, of right and wrong, good and bad, pleasure, pain, uh, happiness, suffering, praise and blame. This is all part of, the, of uh, the experience of being human, a sensitive form, conscious form. Because sensitivity is like that, isn't it? Being, uh, having a human body, being, in, being a conscious human entity, of course, means that we, for a lifetime, we're going to experience this impact of the sense world, which is, has, you know, the, all those ranges from pleasure to pain, from oh, uh, right and wrong, good and bad. Uh, all the senses work on that principle, you know, with hearing what we see, hear, smell, taste, touch, think, emotional bliss or emotional anguish. Uh, And so, the uh, enlightenment then of the Buddha was waking up to the way it is. So the the the, uh, marvel of Buddha's enlightenment wasn't wasn't a kind of fantastic event. It wasn't something that was, you know, so beyond anybody's potential, um, and you know, so refined a, a re- realization that people could, you know, there was no hope for the rest of it. And so his teaching then was one of, of waking up, and observing. He's starting with the experience of Dukkha as the first noble truth, the uh, an ordinary uh, common experience that we all know. It's not, not a belief. You don't believe in suffering you because you suffer. And so you start looking. You start taking the most common ordinary human experience and putting it in a context of a teaching, the four noble truths, exploring that takes you to uh, the reality to be able to free oneself from the delusions that uh, cause our suffering. So, in the in the story of the Buddha's life, you know, he after his enlightenment, <coughs> he uh, because it is you know the enlightened conscious state. It doesn't have a vocabulary. You know, words uh, can't reach it. So, when you try to frame it into teachings, or uh, give it form as as some kind of, uh, through an intellectual teaching of some sort, or technique, it tends to, you know, one tends to, uh, it it tends to easily be misunderstood, because uh, thinking, and uh, our ability to think is a very conditioned uh, experience that we have. You know, we have we can we have a retentive memory. We can name things. We have because there's different languages, but we we all agree to you know within our ethnic groups, the language we use is then uh, how we experience life. <clears throat> we define ourselves uh, in terms of. Uh, our own personal qualities and appearance, and define ourselves according to the gender of the body. We're either male or female, or we're, uh, you know, we have a certain ethnic identity, class identity, race identity. These are all conditions. It takes takes words, doesn't it? We have to define it through through concepts. So the Buddha was was pointing to. Uh, awakened awareness Uh, so this is this is very uh, this is the essence of Buddhism so awakened awareness isn't a cultivated state it's not like a a a refined state of consciousness it's the ability to uh, pay attention to the in the present to be fully attentive receptive to the way it is in the present. And so that includes both what you're feeling internally or experiencing through your senses or the environment that you happen to be in at the time. So this, this awakening is, um, you know, it was a proclaimed by, by the Buddha 2,547 years ago. In lumping uh, in uh, Bulgaya, no in Sarnath. in fact he was a, he was, a, he was uh, enlightened in Bulgaya, and then he traveled to Sarnath near Benares, <coughs> and gave his first sermon, the Tajakka Pawatana suit the teaching of the four noble truths now it's first after his enlightenment uh, you know, for six years before he was enlightened he he gave up all the worldly uh, pleasures he had was a very privileged person, being a prince and having uh, all the the best that I imagine that life had to offer at that time uh, and because uh, there was a, an awakening going on, we all have this experience don't we where even no matter how successful or or um, pleasant life can be for us, we, that is not enough. We're not, we're not really content or really satisfied just with material wealth or powerful positions. In fact, you can see this, this desire that we have even for power or domination or for wealth is, is really ultimately an aspiration for enlightenment. It gets distorted in materialistic ways of thinking, isn't it? Because we, we think if we have lots of money, we'll be happy. There's an illusion that we will not suffer if we have, uh, have enormous amounts of money. Or power, you know, to be powerful, have, be able to not be under the authority of anyone else. These, thing, these are oftentimes very attractive on, on the worldly level. But once, even if you attain these states of supreme power and, and uh, great wealth, still something missing. Because this realm is, a, it, you know, you, you, if you haven't awakened to into the way things are, uh, there's no way that and you can find satisfaction in the conditioned realm that we're experiencing. It's not, it's, it's very nature, it's unsatisfying. Everything changes. It's, uh, it's uh, this relentless, inexorable changingness that we're experiencing all the time. And yet uh, in, in modern life, we want to fix things, make rules and and try to uh, make laws and 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 kind of uh, make things that will last forever, you know rules that we'll keep and everybody will keep, and that will make our lives uh, safe and secure uh, forever and ever. but we never quite succeed you know we. We reach peak moments where everything seems to be going well, and then it changes, so the Buddha, in his uh, enlightenment saw w- awakened to reality under the Bodhi tree and even though his all his efforts at trying to control the mind uh, when you spent his six years uh, with ascetic practices uh, was you know was was one way of of seeking to escape suffering by refining conscious experience, not like if you just one follows one's basic desires, one experience you experience life on a coarse level, just eating and and sleeping and and playing and sexual uh, e- experiences and so forth. Uh, the um, it's a level of pleasure, but it's quite coarse. So as you uh, refined conscious experience by denying uh, a lot of sensory impingement, like sensory deprivation, mental control, one-pointedness on an object which excludes the coarser elements. You experience uh, a complicitful state of tranquility and and rapture and that, that are very pleasant. But then uh, the ascetic Gautama, as he was then, he gave up his title as Prince Siddhartha, became the ascetic Gotama. He, uh, he experimented six years with these uh, developing these these uh, qualities, but something was still missing There's still it wasn't it wasn't content. Those states depend on control and on uh, you know you have to keep things under control. you have to shut things away you have to deny to to sustain refinement in this realm. Because the realm that we're actually living in, the sense realm, is the earth, fire, water, air, its consciousness, its space, it's it's coarse and refined. Our bodies, you know, are basically earth, fire, water, and air. They're coarse elements. And so that we can refine consciousness, but inevitably the body makes its demands and uh, just denying it uh, trying to protect it or denying impingement upon it one can only sustain for so long and then one uh, you know, there's no way you can can keep that going unless you you, you're willing to to stay that way till you die which, you know, wouldn't be take very long if you stopped eating. You can even refine your needs for sustenance and so forth. But at the end of the day, uh, it's, it's a, you know, it, it, it it's, it's also is unsatisfactory. Just refined conscious experiences. So what the Buddha then realized under the Bodhi tree was the Dhamma or the way it is. It was a, a recognition a, a, a profound insight into the reality of now, which wasn't, didn't, wasn't uh, trying to refine anything, but just recognizing this moment as it is, both in its coarse or refined experiences. Because with awareness, uh, mindfulness is our ability to receive life in, in totality. You know, it's an opening uh, to receive things. It's, an, it's not. It's not. There's no denial. There's no resistance to it. Awareness is our ability to to open and receive life through the senses, through the through our minds, in whatever is happening in the present. So, whether it's peaceful and harmonious, or warlike, or unharmonious, or pleasure, pleasurable or painful mindfulness allows us to receive the reality of experience in which then when we accept that when we accept the way it is then we do not create suffering we don't because the real suffering the Buddha was pointing to or is pointing to is not a complaint against the sensual world or the the nature of the human body or the planetary life it was the way we identify and cling to it and so the awakened state is then you know one sti- the, the body is still what it is the Buddha's body after enlightenment still functioned in an ordinary human way it didn't transmute into ether or a special kind of uh, refined uh, qu- vibration but it was still, he still experienced the aging process, pleasure, pain, pain, sickness through the body, and the death of the body. The stories of the Buddha's life after enlightenment are stories about, uh, you know, the compassion of the Buddha in trying to convey this teaching and encourage others towards enlightenment. So establishing the Sangha, Monks and nuns, and 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 uh, establishing the teaching of the Four Noble Truths, and so forth, was a way of of uh, giving giving it some form that could be passed on from one one generation to the next. So this particular form, Theravada Buddhism, uh, is is probably the oldest existing. Uh, form uh, that that had survived from that time, so we still keep to the the dhamma, the vinaya uh, that that was established by the Lord Buddha. And it's interesting to uh, you know to contemplate that at a time modern time where science is is as, as, uh, you know is at its peak of being able to mani- manipulate the worldly conditions and perform miracles, uh, where we have so much, uh, you know, uh, physical comfort these days, and and uh, material wealth, and uh, where we have we have endless, you know, high tech is, in, you know, tra- changing so rapidly. They can't, they can't keep one can't keep up with it. We complain here about last year's computer, <laughs> because <laughs> computer five years old nobody wants anymore, and so that it it moves very quickly. The ability to manipulate and transform the elements, adapt them and move them and change them uh, according to our wishes and our desires, uh, our interests. And yet at the same time, you know, we find most people being uh, suffering from all kinds of diseases and mental stress and depression seem to be very common in affluent societies like this one. in all affluent societies, you know, people are endlessly complaining about being stressed. Mental breakdown, uh, alcoholism, drug addiction, uh, these things increase because uh, there's not any any escape for most people from the this worldly movement, from this change, changingness, and it moves so rapidly now. It, it creates more stress. We're in the old days, like living in in uh, rural Thailand uh, back in the '60s in Northeast Thailand, you know, people live very much according to natural rhythms. They followed the seasons, and they weren't, they weren't, there was no high tech. They had water buffaloes and plows and things like that. But, they, but the, the, the life was much more harmonious because of the uh, natural rhythms, the seasons, their bodies, and so forth. There was a sense of, of uh, integration. But now in, in a country like this, we can live totally artificial existence most of our lives. You can live in a flat in London and uh, have it centrally heated and air conditioned and with electricity and and uh, with television computer and your attention's always focused on on comfort and and entertainment or distraction so it is. Uh, I can understand uh, why so many people are interested in Buddhism at this time that were never interested before we get requests from all over the world from uh, people interested in Buddhist meditation wanting to learn how to practice meditation because this is stating isn't it They, they need they need to know something that they don't know that they can't get through studying about Buddhism getting a phd in buddhist uh, philosophy or in in just in in worldly pursuits there, there's a recognition of some another way i mean we can always take antidepressants or tranquilizers <laughs> as you know but they they don't have very good lasting effect and and oftentimes very dangerous side effects so hi, there are many people awakening to the fact that it's something we need to do ourselves. It's through through our own awakening. We can't, go, we can't expect to be awakened by somebody else. There's a part of us that feels inadequate to that because uh, when we talk about enlightenment it sounds so grand and so beyond our ability and that's because of the way we think like the Buddha easily becomes almost deified doesn't he in in Buddhist uh, mind where we put him on a pedestal way up high up in the sky he becomes a kind of deity easily because Buddha then becomes more like a god that we worship but the actual word itself Buddha means awakened you know, it's, a, it's the the word itself says. You know, is is the essence of the religion. Awakened, the awakened one. Now, awakening is not. You know, this is this is quite. This is not a difficult thing to do. Unless you think about it, <laughs> and if you form ideas about how you should awaken, but. It's just learning to pay attention, to open to this moment and reflect in it, notice, investigate, watch. And to do this, you have to trust that, that awakened awareness in consciousness, it's not an analytical process. You're not trying to figure out how it is or analyze uh, it in terms of good, better, best, bad, worse, worse or right or wrong, or good or bad, or should or shouldn't. And that this is the awakened awareness is, uh, is an intuitive ability. It's, it's, it's that, that ability is our entrance into the deathless, into ultima, into universal, into the universal wisdom, universal intelligence comes from that. Through awakenness, not through cultivating thoughts and uh, and uh, through reason and logic or analysis. So the awakening, then, it, it's an immanence. It's uh, an, uh, it's something that is so simple that when you think about it, it becomes more than what it is. So this is where we. In, in meditation, the aim that what we call meditation in English, is really uh, an encouragement to trust in your ability to pay attention, to open, to receive life. Now I found in my own practice, because this is what, what uh, why I became a monk years ago, this will be my thirty-eighth masa. this July, August, uh, and so it's um, most of my life. I've been a Buddhist monk, and the um, and and of course the aim. Of, the reason why I became a Buddhist monk was to practice meditation, uh, and that was that was what I was interested in. So uh, it was uh, that was my whole. You know, I couldn't. I didn't particularly just want to be a Buddhist monk, as not that in itself? <laughs> but it seemed to be, offer that potential, that possibility, uh, where medit- one could receive teachings from uh, masters, and, and where the lifestyle itself was, was conducive, was supportive. So in terms of the uh, the monastic Buddhist monasticism, uh, as I discovered it in Thailand in the Thai Forest Tradition, was seemed to be uh, in kind of a uh, you know a form that was practical. You know, it wasn't it wasn't demanding anything I couldn't do, and uh, and and also it, um, the fact that it still you know that w- that it was still operating after 2,500 years impressed me. And that the teaching itself was still untainted. Like the, the teacher that I, I chose and lived with was uh, Ajahn Ch- uh, Lumpur Chah. Now, uh, now his teaching was all around the Four Noble Truths. I lived with him quite closely for 10 years and so it was, that was all he ever talked about. You know, everything pointed to that. And uh, and then uh, the, the the restraint of the vinaya and so forth was the way of of simplifying life down to to where I wasn't you know if you're a monk you don't have the options that you have as a layperson they're much more restricted and so I found that very helpful because being uh, who I was at that time I was not a disciplined person a lay person and. Uh, and I was very keen on, uh, you know, my my options in life were have always been quite generous as a lay person. And I've always had the kind of sense I can do what I want, go where I want, think what I want, say what I want. Uh, being American, we're brought up like that. So, <laughs> so, so uh, this kind of idealism of of the American system. Uh, was was too even though it was it had its advantages, and I certainly uh, appreciated much of it, but in terms of really developing, I could see it was it, there was no boundary There's too, you know it was it it gave no 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 place to reside in no limit on action and speech so that was one reason my intuition sense of, of the uh, the uh, importance of monasticism so in the in these years that have passed, then developing that and it's a been an ongoing practice because it uh, you know you you have the insight I had insight very early uh, in my monastic life, I was still the uh, and, era and and But then, to, but then the, the momentum, the power of habit was overwhelming still. But that insight actually uh, was uh, something that, that, even though I see it many times in my monastic life, I felt I, I, I didn't have it anymore because I could easily fall back into my, into my personality, the way my personality thinks and reacts to things. But there is this momentum, once you, you have that insight, you have that trust, you have a certain amount of, you have what is called sada or faith, confidence. You know that, 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 that this, is a, in this, this works, it's, the reality is like this. You know this on a gut level, it isn't just theoretical idea. So you, you know this from, you know, from here, rather than uh, as a, some kind of romantic ideal that it, it, it seemed to be in the beginning, you know. Nice to be enlightened. <laughs> and I like the idea. But then what is it, you know? Then from the, from the actual looking, and observing, witnessing, paying attention, and, notice and then noticing, the way things are. The Buddhist teachings then are all pointing at that. That's why they're, they're not doctrinal teachings. They're, they're teachings that are pointing at reality, at ways of looking. If, if you investigate the, like the, um, the Four Noble Truths and, and all that comes from that teaching alone, the, the dependent origination, or the uh, even Abhidhamma, things like this, as these are pointing, at this moment at reality they're not if one just grasps the words you you know you're not you won't see it you have to look you have to trust in this awareness so then this is uh this enlightenment then is is like awakening uh the buddha then established when it, when he was enlightened, as as it reads in the scriptures, you know, his first reaction was, this is unteachable. No one can understand this. Because how do you teach ultimate reality? How do you teach reality? Because words themselves, the language itself, is born out of ignorance through greed and desire. So, so then um, then uh, as the scripture continues, the uh, Brahma Sahampati, the Brahma god, out of compassion came and encouraged the Buddha to go and teach for the welfare. Uh, there's those with only a little dust in their eyes that will understand. So this was the, this was the encouragement, isn't it, so this, you know, this is put in mythological language or symbolic language like, who's Brahma Sahampati anyway? <laughs> but in terms of, of of symbolic language, it's very valuable because that's the the universal force, the wisdom force. And uh, and so it's, um, so then the Buddha went. And when he gave his teaching, it was, Pointing to n- not to himself, as saying, "I'm you know I'm an enlightened person," but he's pointing to something that is quite ordinary, isn't it? There is suffering. There is the cause. There is cessation. There is the way of non-suffering. So this is this is what he gave. Is the Dhammacakkappavattana Sutta is is just that, you know, the Four Noble Truths. So the the his five uh, colleagues who had deserted him because uh, they had a kind of uh, you know they were they were keen on ascetic practices and they thought just by by doing that they'd somehow hopefully get enlightened someday uh, and the aesthetic Gotama could see that wasn't they you know they were in, in terms of he'd probably reached the, the uh, zenith of, of that experience and and saw through it so his teaching then was uh, was one on, on pointing to the here and now the dukkha, the suffering the unsatisfactoriness of that we experience the anxiety, the disease, self-consciousness worry, tendencies to worry uh, all that, that, that we experience as human beings, putting that in the, into this context of, of dukkha. So the Pali word dukkha, uh, it means that which we can't bear, you know, it's unbearable. So dukkha then is, 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 the, is the from, the, we create dukkha onto life. Now we can, you know, the, the, the most people think that life makes us suffer so that we you know getting old is suffering we can curse god for allowing illness and pain into his creation or we can blame you know somebody else for abusing or uh, insulting me but in terms of awareness then the the suffering that 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 is pointed to as the first noble truth is what I create out of that, even if somebody is abusing me, you know, they are torturing me, it's the fear and aversion that I create. That's the dukkha that the Buddha is pointing to. Or just things, that's an extreme case. But in, uh, just like in my own experience, I've never been tortured, uh, uh, mentally or physically. But <laughs> by anyone. But uh, I've certainly, you know, can blame people for making me unhappy, for displeasing me, for upsetting me, for not doing what I want, for not being sensitive to my feelings, for misunderstanding me, for betraying me. You know, in all of our experiences of life relating to other human beings, there's always these, these feelings of being let down or misunderstood or betrayed or uh, by someone. So then seeing this in, in terms of reflection, I see that even though I could make it probably make a good case for some of those memories, the real suffering was the suffering I created, the anger, the resentment. the the way I would carry that, the the, uh, self-pity, feeling sorry for myself, uh, wanting to seek revenge, wanting to get even, wanting to uh, harm somebody who's harmed me, things like this. This is the suffering I create. So when when you see this, you know, you realize that you have a choice. You can follow that line or not. Like with awareness, we stop doing that. You you, you see through, you don't have to do that. Before I meditated, I didn't know. It's just the way I was conditioned, programmed by life. So I didn't know any way out of it. And then in the practice of Buddhist meditation, I had the insight into this, that, that uh, no matter what happened to me, physically or Emotionally, uh, that I actually, if I if I wanted to, to hate and resent or attach or or cling or feel sorry for myself, whatever. This was what I can't bear. I found out I can. I'm quite resilient and can bear all kind of physical discomfort, diseases I've had, you know, in malaria and. and and uh, various uh, unpleasant diseases about, they're bearable. I can bear that. Physical pain, it's bearable. They, uh, they uh, and, and life itself. It's all, I can bear with the changingness, the movement, uh, the, the comings and goings of others, the disappointments, the betrayal. These are all bearable. But if I think I can't bear it, it shouldn't be like this, and I'll never forgive you, that I, that's unbearable. <laughs> and so, so then you, you can see, well, I create that. I'm the one that creates those thoughts. If I stop doing that, then I find I can bear most any, everything that's happened so far. There might be something in the future. <laughs> To me, then, the, the Buddha's message is something that is very appropriate to this time, and that's why, uh, you know, there is an interest that never existed, like the West, the European side of this continent, you know, uh, of this huge continent we call Europe in Asia. On the European side, there's, there's hardly any, you know, in history, there, there are kind of, you have moments where there were probably Buddhist monks in Egypt at one time, but nothing really seemed to to develop, and Buddhism seemed to thrive in the Asian side. And then, uh, and then, when, and during the British Empire days, the British took a lot of interest in the cultures that they tended to colonize, and, and so there, were, there was a lot of interest in, they were, many of the British were the, the colonial Officers were the archaeologists that discovered the Buddhist sites in India. For <laughs> so many of these, Buddhists, Buddhism had almost been totally forgotten in India uh, by that time, and uh, a place like Amravati was completely buried, and, and as I was saying previously about Borobudur in Java, that was totally forgotten as a Buddhist, as, as when the Muslim invasions took place in Indonesia. And and then, because of the interest in archaeology that the English had, then they would, they'd, fi- they'd find these mounds, and they'd think, well, what's under here, what's, what thing can I find? And they uncover, you know, these ruins of old stupas or temples. And so Buddhism now is, is you know, in India itself, when you go there, as there last year for six months is, there's, there's quite a growing interest in Buddhism again and uh and it, it's uh, you know because it's been suddenly recognized as as uh you know as as a part of it's part of indian culture that has been almost totally forgotten and then here in uh in the uh in, uh, in europe in the in north america place uh, especially in the english speaking countries but also in in uh in uh other places, there's a growing interest in Buddhism in the practice of it. This is what it offers, and I- its value is most apparent at this time. Is this way of practice, We're awakening? Because if we don't awaken, there's not much hope for this planet, you know, in terms of human life, and uh, you know, it's. Uh, it's increasingly more problems, you know, more pollution, more population, more people, uh, endless, you know, uh, how are we going to live together? We can't agree on basic moral precepts anymore. You know, it's all right to go and murder people in other countries now and torture them and all that. There's no, even the Geneva Conventions can be thrown out the window. (laughs) The United States is, manages to do that now, doesn't it? Throw, just throw out the Geneva Conventions. And so, and just kind of decent human behavior is no longer, you know, uh, agreed upon. Like, like just the the first precept, Bana di in its most coarse interpretation, you know, of not killing, intentionally killing another human being. Uh, that's not agreed on. And so, For a Buddhist, war is never morally acceptable. You know, it's not a, when Britain joined with the Americans to, to invade Iraq. But for a Buddhist, that's morally un, unacceptable because it, it inevitably involves killing others. Uh, even killing uh, Saddam Hussein, this is not part of a Buddhist, you know, we would not encourage the murder of even uh, somebody like that. <laughs> because the, this, our humanity is, is, is supported in this way of, you know, basic morality, agreements on, on behavior, respect for life. And and uh, and this is this is what this was what were part of the this is the beauty of our humanity, isn't it? The fact that that you know we can we can agree on moral precepts. You know, just this, this morning when I gave the five precepts. You know, that you know, that might be just a uh, you know, Theravada Buddhist custom on Whisaka puja day, but also it's quite profound. It's quite beautiful thing to do to reaffirm this sense of not, you know, of nonviolent, not killing other human beings. And, and agree to this is our intention for our life, not to destroy or misuse property or the environment. The second precept can be an environmental one, you know, not to exploit or abuse or steal or take advantage of other people 's property or possessions and uh, third one around sexuality taking responsibility for sexual behavior rather than than uh, than uh, just using it for personal pleasure just uh, you know for just to have no control over one 's energies or the the fourth one of. Uh, Speech not to to refrain from intentionally telling falsehoods or lies or exaggerations or speaking in ways that insult or harm others, and then the fifth of refraining from addictive substances so these five precepts are you know they're good guidelines for for behavior for humanity, whether you're Buddhist or not doesn't make much difference they they're quite. Practical and usable for what, for humanity in general, and to me, this is uh, this is what we need to agree on in, at this time—not just power struggling and and an idealism about democracy and and trying to force democracy onto Iraq according to the way I think it should be. <laughs> and, uh, on and on like that. That's taking good ideas and then shoving them down your throat. You know, you just feel suffocated or strangled by my good intentions. But in terms of moral precepts, it is, it is uh, an agreement. You know, we try at least. Try to, those are guidelines. They're not commandments uh, from above. But they're, they're guidelines for action and speech. That, that respect the right to live and individual human beings, and then it, it, from there it goes on to the to all creatures. You know, it's a, the important thing at this point is uh, to stop killing each other. Intentionally killing sometimes just uh, things move in that direction. One is. Uh, killed by somebody else, but, the, uh, but that may not be at their intention. Then the, then the practice of meditation is, is what we take on in life to learn and understand ourselves uh, in our human form and the limitations that we're under. We're not trying to become supermen or, uh, you know, specially special beings. We're learning how to be quite ordinary, like uh, the the more mindful you are, the less you, con- you def- de- describe yourself with superlatives or special adjectives. You know, like I find, you know, the being, wanting to be the best monk, or the, or the all these kind of things seem totally ridiculous. Wanting to, wanting titles. Having, having, giving, you know, in monasticism, you can be given titles, post titles, and wanting that kind of thing seems ridiculous to me. It's moving more towards non-identity, not wanting, not seeing, not holding oneself in that way of I'm a special person, because you're your your awakening. That awakening is is common to. I mean, it's a it's the bond we all share it's where we're equal where our specialties our idiosyncrasies oddities or whatever are, are no longer the issue they they come and go and change but that awareness is is a unity it's a oneness that we share when we when we take refuge in there so then in terms of the Misaka Puja day, birth, this, this birth as a human being. It's a great gift, because during that span between birth and death is this possibility, enlightenment. Then death, nothing to fear if you see things as they are. If you, if you don't see things, if you don't understand, if you still see yourself as your human body Uh, you know, sick and in pain and old and dying, then uh, death could be rather frightening. For many people it is. Terrifying or whatever, because you know, it's it's like I'm going to disappear, I'm going to die, and and we don't know what that really is. Except when you think about it, it seems like if you don't have the body, no matter how old or sick it is, it's you just can't, you won't be anymore. You're so attached, so identified with the physical body or with the sense of yourself as a person, individual person. But as you trust in the awareness, that's not, that doesn't, that doesn't separate me. That doesn't make me individual or unique. It's a place of rest and, of, uh, and it has its joys to it it's it's a freedom and therefore it's uh, death of the body is just the natural flow from birth to death it's just the way things go you know as soon as I think my body's that I'm creating isn't it I'm creating that sense of my body I'm dying that's that's the dukkha the, what I can't bear which seems unbearable and Miserable, but if I stop doing that, if I stop creating, then the uh, then the aging process, the uh, pain and, and illness, these are all these are all bearable experiences, and death of the body I've yet to experience, so I can't speak from experience on that. <laughs> but. Uh, it's not too far away. <laughs> so, offering this as a reflection for today, this is uh, the, the taking, this is the, Misaka Puja is the birth, the Nibbana, the enlightenment, the Parinibbana. Nibbana, they call the death of the Buddha's Parinibbana. Nibbana. And therefore, this is, these are, you know, the the three the, the first two, we all... The first one we've all experienced, but we don't remember. I don't mm-hmm. remember being born. But I know I was because I'm here. <laughs> and uh, that led to this moment, and like this, and then death, then you can see now uh, uh, this old body isn't like it used to be and... Uh, it uh, doesn't have the energy and resilience that I used to have, even two years ago. So, you know, it's aging. Be seventy soon, and uh, and uh, but that's all right because that's not suffering. That's just the natural flow and movement and change of the physic- physical world. It'd be suffering if I. I don't want to get old, then, that, then that's what I can't bear. Uh, I hate old age. I don't like th- this, you know, wrinkles and arthritic feet and things like this. I don't like them, I can't bear them. But if I don't think about them, they're all bearable. Wrinkles I can bear, arthritic feet I can bear. They're okay. You know if I could uh, you know get rid of the arthritis, that'd be fine, but if it can't, it's okay too so it's not not like something I'm going to create suffering about so since we're all in the on the same planet in the same boat, human beings, you know this is the Buddha's pointing to this common human isn't it it's, pointing, it's not a matter of ancient India or you know cultural values of India it's pointing to universal truths that are beyond the cultural conditions of the time so that's why Buddhism uh, integrates very well into any country that it goes to because it it isn't you know you're not trying to convert people into some asian religious form and and that because then you know there'd be very few interested in doing that what they're interested in here in in europe is in this in the teaching the essential teaching of the buddha and this is uh, and this is now increasingly more available here in england in in britain and in in uh, europe United States, there's Buddhist organizations all over the place, and this is, uh, to me, a a good sign of the times, that this uh, this particular teaching is is not one to, you know, you're not trying to convert, it's not a teaching that that tries to divide or create more problems or to, you know, compete with other religions. It's for awakening the individuals, you know, so that they can understand and see things as they are and realize the way of of, uh, liberation or non-suffering. So I offer this as a reflection for this afternoon.